Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Just to let you know uh, what exhibitions we have on view, Chinese American Exclusion Inclusion, which explores the centuries-long history of trade and immigration between China and the U.S., as well as Freedom Journey, 1965 photographs of the Selma to Montgomery March by Stephen Summerstein are two extraordinary exhibitions. If you haven't seen them, we invite you to return. And also, this is the last weekend um, for two of our other exciting exhibitions, Holiday Express Toys and Trains from the Journey Collection, which you've seen on your way in, and Annie Leibovitz's Pilgrimage, a series of really extraordinary photographs. So. If you haven't seen those, come back, um, pick up a brochure on your way out with all our new programs coming up. Um, consider becoming a member. If you're not, you'll play an invaluable role in supporting all our programs. And I always ask, I put my glasses on for this one, how many members are with us? So I see one person who's not a member. <laughs> And uh, we, we want to tell all of the members how much we appreciate your support, your being with us, um, and we want, I think everyone will join me in inviting that one person to become a member as well. So, and we, we're thrilled to have non-members here too, just to let you know you're, you're as welcome as our members. Today's program, The American Revolution and the Fate of the British Empire, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, The Heart of Our Public Programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which enables us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I'd also like to recognize and thank trustees Morris Offit and Ira Unschuld with us to this morning, and all the Chairman's Council members with us today for all their great work and support. Let's give them all a hand. The program this morning will last an hour and a half and include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach two standing mics in the aisles. We ask that you do this, actually I'm, I'm speaking to the one person who's not a member. Um, we, we, and, and please don't take that negatively, we, we love having you with us. We ask you to do this so that everyone in the auditorium and those who listen to our recorded podcasts can hear you. Following the program, please join us for a book signing with our speaker whose book will be available for purchase in our museum store. So we are thrilled to welcome Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy, the Saunders Director of the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello and Professor of History at the University of Virginia. He's lectured widely to both scholarly and general audiences and he is an editor of the Jeffersonian American series of the University of Virginia Press. Professor O'Shaughnessy has also written several books, including An Empire Divided, The American Revolution and the British Caribbean, and most recently, The Men Who Lost America, British Leadership, The American Revolution, and the Fate of the Empire, which won New York Historical's American History Book Prize in 2014. So before we begin, I'd ask you to please turn off any cell phones, electronic devices. Um, 
We don't allow photography during the talks, only our uh, house photographer. And so now um, you're all ready for the show to begin, right? Okay. Let's welcome Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm very grateful to uh, Dale Gregory and also Alex Castle, who does all the logistical arrangements to be invited to the New York Historical Society. This is a wonderful collection, one of the really great state historical societies. It's an organization that has enjoyed a renaissance in the last uh, 15 or so years, thanks largely to you and to trustees and former trustees like Dick Gilder. Uh, it's really been wonderful to watch um, just how much uh, it's progressed, um, the amount of public uh, programming. I'm really envious when I look at your catalog, wishing that I could come to so many more of these events. It was also one of the highlights uh, of my last year to win the uh, American History Book Prize and to come here to uh, receive it. It was one of those moments in life where you wish you could have just pressed the pause button. And when I, ex <laughs> when I accepted the prize, I mentioned that there were actually two covers and two titles for this book. One in the United States <laughs> and uh, one in Britain. And I'm in the position today to be able to show you both covers. So this is the U.S. edition produced by Yale. And I have to say, although I can make no claims for the content as author, I can say that there is no book on the American Revolution with more red-colored illustrations, <laughs> thanks to the fact that they did uh, color illustrations. They really did a very lavish production. Um, but the, uh, the illustration uh, on the cover actually appears on both covers, but with different angles. It's from a painting by John Singleton Copley, the American artist, and it's actually not here in America, but it's during the American Revolutionary War. It was part of the larger global war. And this, in fact, shows the siege of Gibraltar. It's a British victory. Uh, and there were very few. And you realize that there is no John, series of John Trumbull paintings in Britain of the American Revolution. Uh, it was Thomas Jefferson who uh, suggested to Trumbull that he commemorate the revolution in later years and provide a record of it. The British, needless to say, were not celebrating it. And they, you know, the paintings they produce are essentially celebrations. Uh, the, the larger painting is huge. It's almost a mural. Uh, it was removed from London during the Second World War and sent to the island of Gibraltar where it remained for about 40 years and is now back at the Guildhall Museum of Art in London. And therefore, it's not very familiar to many people. And the, the detail that Yale showed on the cover in many ways reinforces the stereotypes that this book 
is written against. It shows this haughty British commander, and it's very appropriate because the book is about leadership, but you have the haughty mounted British commander pointing into the distance in a role that could have been played by Sir Lawrence Olivier, who, who did indeed play the role of um, John Burgoyne in one of his uh, films, pointing into the distance. And friends of mine look at this picture and they say that his junior officer looks as though he's looking up to him and saying, are you being serious? <laughs> and then it has my full name. Uh, actually, Jackson is my mother's maiden name. Uh, but my father had studied American government in college. They are both America files. There's no such word, but there should be of those who are very fond of the United States. And uh, he was aware what happened when you juxtapose them. Uh, Jackson at the time was regarded as a very uncomplicated figure. There was no revisionist history at that point. And so he just regarded him as a firm proponent of democracy. And then if you look at the subtitle, even the subtitle in the British edition is different. The title in America is British Leadership, the American Revolution, and the Fate of the Empire. This is the British edition, and you'll notice... Uh, You'll notice that the camera has sort of pulled back, and now you have this rugby scrum of victorious-looking redcoats, because as uh, British publishers would tell you, there's no interest in Britain in defeats. You know, they, only, they only want to really read about uh, victories. Uh, the figure who looked as though he was being crucified in the bottom left-hand corner has disappeared, uh, my middle name disappeared. <laughs> the British publisher was very worried that people might think I was American and that they weren't getting the British perspective. And then the uh, subtitle changed. Instead of British leadership, it's British command, which has a slightly different tone to it. And instead of the fate of the empire, it's the preservation of the empire. Because part of this book is indeed about the victories the British won against the French in the later stages of the war, and which are not really very well known to audiences on either side of the Atlantic. Now, this was a war that supposedly Britain should have won. It had all of the advantages, seemingly. Uh, the British uh, had earlier become the preeminent global power in what in Europe is called the Seven Years' War, what in this country is called the French and Indian War. During that war, they, of course, acquired Canada, but perhaps less well-known, they acquired Bengal in India, which was to become their main footprint in British India. They also acquired several islands in the Caribbean, uh, they even uh, took Havana in Cuba, although that was returned to Spain after the war. But the British had been triumphant, um, almost uh, dangerously so. Uh, the French and Spanish were determined for a rematch at some point. 
But the American Revolution was an aberration because the British went on to win the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars and to defeat arguably the greatest general in history, Napoleon. And that was done by a lot of people who'd been junior officers during the American Revolution. So my book is about really what went wrong. Why did they fail? And one of the very popular ideas about why they failed was that their leadership was simply incompetent. They messed up. Uh, That these were aristocratic buffoons that the British sent out to command. And I'll be showing a little later on in the talk how that stereotype plays out in movies, which are probably some of the most influential sources of popular history, and also reflect folk psychology and beliefs about what happened in the past, but that it even seeps into academic history as well. The book is set up in um, biographical chapters, but these are interlinked biographies written along a timeline, so they tell the cumulative story of the war. I set them up rather like characters in a play, so that uh, you really meet each character at the point that they become key to the decision-making during the American Revolution. They are both military and political figures. It was important to include the politicians because all too often we tend to think that military decisions are made in a vacuum and they're based purely on uh, the wish of commanders whereas we should know always that commanders are under political pressure, especially in a system where there was some form of representation, where governments depended on votes and getting budgets uh, passed. These ten individuals, which I'm representing, in fact, not as buffoons, but people of real substance, not unlike a book written about Vietnam, which I hadn't read, in fact, when I uh, embarked upon this, known as the the best and the brightest. Uh, The ten, of course, include George III, someone who I was originally going to leave to the very end. I thought he'd be the least interesting, and then I was asked to write about him for a college textbook. And in many ways, he's one of the most intriguing of figures. Uh, Because here was someone who would go down in history as a tyrant, who was essentially blamed personally for the war in the Declaration of Independence. Apart from the famous preamble of the Declaration of Independence, most of it is a series of charges against Britain to prove that there was a situation of tyranny here in America in 1776. And most of those charges are personally made against George III. Even the slave trade was blamed on George III. In reality, he had very little responsibility for the policies that led to the American Revolutionary War. Those were made, for the most part, by his prime minister and his ministers. He'd even had a moderating role on some policies in the uh, 1760s. However, you can keep him as a villain 
in American history because after the Boston Tea Party, he became one of the most hawkish of people in England. He was obsessed with the war. And in fact, uh, by the middle of the war, in many ways, it was perpetuated by his insistence that Britain go on, even though the prime minister wanted to resign, even though many of the general officers were arguing that uh, it was impossible to win, uh, George III was determined to go on. Even after Yorktown, George III wanted to continue the war. Uh, He argued, and it was so important to him, because he argued that if Britain lost America, it would cease to be a major power in Europe. That belief was shared by many, including members of the opposition who'd wanted to end the war much earlier. They did believe that it would be critically change Britain's standing in Europe if it lost America. So we can discount one belief that's held more in Britain than in America, that the American colonies just didn't matter very much in 1776. They mattered a very great deal. Britain poured its resources into fighting this war. It spent far more money than it would ever have received in taxes on tea and sugar from uh, America. George III twice tried to, or actually wrote, his abdication speech and essentially threatened resignation and going back to the family lands in, um, in Hanover in Germany. Uh, this is how obsessed he was. Uh, he was described by one historian writing just after the Second World War as sounding almost like Churchill. And this was a historian, Herbert Butterfield, who'd actually heard Churchill speak. And he commented, you know, the phrases like, if any ten men will stand beside me, I intend to go on. So George III, uh, this painting, incidentally, is of him at the height of the war in 1779, and it was by his favorite artist, who ironically was American. Uh, This is by Benjamin West. And at the time, George III had moved his favorite royal retreat outside London from a small palace in Richmond to Windsor Castle, which he started to renovate. And he was literally in a military mode. Uh, Here you see him in his own red coat. He would have marches played every evening, and he uh, attended to every detail of the war. Uh, He did have the role of commander-in-chief. He would inspect the military units. Uh, He made visits down to the docks to watch the preparation of the Navy, and he sent two of his sons, uh, his 14-year-old Prince William, entered the Navy and would see service in the Caribbean and would be the first member of the royal family to visit New York, although ironically in the month preceding Yorktown. A somewhat bizarre moment for him to be here. And then uh, his son went into the army, but that was how strong George III felt. Uh, Really is the most hawkish member of the British government at times, He was actually holding the government together. When this painting was done, 
He called them all to what is now Buckingham Palace, which was then a much smaller uh, house known as the Queen's House, and he gave them a pep talk like a coach. And Lord George Germain said, you know, it was remarkable because um, he didn't shout. It was, he was very calm. He rehearsed everything that the British had done in the previous uh, 10 years. Uh, he said it probably would have been unwise looking back to have introduced taxes, but we can't do anything about that. Uh, we've sent our best generals over. And essentially, he was trying to unite the government and uh, make them much more determined in the pursuit of the war. The man who was responsible for the policies that led to the war was indeed the Prime Minister, Lord North. This is the man who, uh, whose government passed the Tea Act, and when Boston uh, you know, opposed it uh, with the Tea Party, uh, his government was the one that passed the coercive acts as they're known in Britain or the intolerable acts as they're known in the United States uh, that essentially would be the trigger of the war and cause all 13 colonies to uh, unite and lead to the creation of the Continental Congress. Lord North was responsible. But... Uh, Lord North, in fact, had inherited a revolutionary situation in America. The day he became prime minister was the day of the Boston Massacre. And for almost three years, he'd been quite successful in diffusing the situation in America to the extent that people were more worried about a war with Spain than uh, a revolution in America. Parliament in uh, 1772... Uh, did not even discuss America. Uh, that's how far it had fallen below the radar. And North was one of the first to recognize that the colonies were indeed united and who, for the rest of the war, spent his time trying to backtrack. Uh, he really became aware of just how intense the feeling was in all of the colonies in December 1774. This was when the British government heard the deliberations of the First Continental Congress. And from that moment, he either secretly or publicly tried to bring forward terms. His first attempt was to negotiate through intermediaries with Benjamin Franklin. In uh, February of 1775, he offered Lord North's conciliatory proposal, which would have allowed the colonies to tax themselves. And he made his best offer, which some might even take today in 1778, which would really just allow token British government uh, a promise no taxes, that Britain would cover the cost of uh, the navy, the army, protection, uh, and the major... Uh, offices of government, uh, it promised to recognize Congress, and it promised um, to uh, allow the assemblies uh, simply to vote their own taxes, uh, largely self-government under nominal British control. Lord North's often presented as a kind of lackey of George III, as a stooge, 
Uh, but in fact, he stuck his neck out. Even his own government were against some of these concessions that he was offering. They couldn't understand why he would do it. And far from being a mediocrity, he was actually uh, a very gifted politician, a very successful manager. Apart from William Pitt the Younger, no other British Prime Minister managed to stay in power in wartime for so long. Uh, He kept his supporters together. He faced one of the toughest parliamentary oppositions of any period of British history, despite the fact that he's known today as the worst prime minister in British history. Lord North regularly outmaneuvered the likes of Edmund Burke, of Charles James Fox, of William Pitt, the younger and the elder. Uh, and he had a great opposition aligned to him. Uh, there was a lot of opposition to the war in 1775. There was the largest anti-war petitioning movement that Britain had ever seen. Parliament received uh, petitions from towns that had never petitioned Parliament before and which had no representative in um, Parliament. But North outmaneuvered them. And the irony, too, of North's career was that he was in many ways responsible for enabling Britain to sustain the war effort. He was a very gifted financier. This was true of all British prime ministers in the 18th century because the biggest concern in Britain in the 18th century was the national debt. The national debt, just the very cost of it, of of paying for the interest on the national debt, often consumed 40 to 50% of uh, annual tax revenue. In America today, I know the last time I looked was a couple of years ago, it was about 16%. And there was a real fear. And this would continue to be a political issue in America right through my namesake, Andrew Jackson, through to the Civil War. The worry about the national debt, the worry about what was seen as these artificial new credit systems, about banking and about paper money. Uh, I was never, it always seemed a dead issue when I talked to students about it 10 years ago. Of course, it's now an issue again. But uh, this was something that concerned the British a great deal. North was a gifted financier. He personally negotiated uh, the loans on those debts. Uh, It's well worth remembering that France in this period went bankrupt as a result of its um, participation in the American Revolutionary War, which led directly to the calling of the Estates General and led directly to uh, the French Revolution. Uh, North managed to keep the country afloat. Uh, So in in some respects, he was a very successful prime minister. There is one chapter with two people in it, and these are the Howe brothers, who are particularly important for the story here in New York. So William Howe and his brother, the Admiral Lord Richard Howe. So William Howe was put in charge of the army. He essentially had uh, commanded at the Battle of Bunker Hill, but he formally assumed command very soon 
afterwards and would remain in command until the middle of the war in 1778. Uh, It sounds like a good old boy arrangement. Uh, Two brothers, one head of the army, one head of the navy. But Sir William Howe insisted that his brother command the navy if he was to assume command. He'd spoken out against the American war earlier, and he'd promised his constituents, he was a member of parliament, that he would never serve in America. And he made, he imposed conditions if he did serve, and one of the most important was that his brother command the Navy, which was very sensible, because there was no such thing as a joint chief of staff. It's a problem in any war for the various services to coordinate, and by having his brother command the Navy, it led to a wonderful uh, relationship between the two services, and most importantly, to excellent coordination. Between them, they were able to land troops anywhere along the coast of America. Sir William Howe, far from being a mediocre commander, had been chosen over 110 more senior generals. Now, there were only about um, 118 people with general command, who were going from major general uh, up to uh, full general. And so he was one of the most junior generals. And the other um, people who served, who were under him and who would later command, Henry Clinton, John Burgoyne, uh, these were among those most junior nine generals. He'd only been a general since 1772. But the reason that he was chosen over all of these much more senior people was because it was thought that he had the best experience, that he was the most competent. The British were doing what they'd done in the French and Indian War when they appointed James Wolfe, of looking for younger people that they felt were more familiar with conditions in America. So William Howard served here in America in one of the greatest British victories of any war. He was on the Plains of Abraham and part of the capture of Quebec. He was a very close friend of uh, James Wolfe, and he stood by the dying commander and is featured in the famous painting by Benjamin West. Uh, He was known as an expert in light infantry, which perhaps today would be most parallel the idea of commandos. These were soldiers who could break out of their traditional regiments, who were highly flexible, who would not, who could uh, work in um, essentially rough formations, uh, who could skirmish, who could engage in bush warfare. It was thought that they would be ideal for what the British often called Indian war in America. And his brother, Lord Richard Howe, is perhaps the best example of how there's a very thin line between success and failure. Because part of my argument is many of these people would have been highly successful in a different context. Lord Richard Howe was appointed because of his brother, and yet he went on to being one of Britain's great naval heroes before Nelson. Lord Richard Howe was going to win a battle later after the Revolutionary War called the Glorious First of June against the French fleet. 
as a result of which he'd be commemorated in pottery, in uh, tokens, and uh, would be uh, a much-loved figure. Pubs would be named after him. And in fact, even during the war, uh, he was really quite successful. Um, But nevertheless, it shows that someone whose name is listed as one of the men who lost America would later become a victor, and we'll see this even more with some of the other personalities. John Burgoyne was not a commander-in-chief. He was a junior general. Uh, But interestingly enough, this war was lost by junior generals. So William Howe essentially never lost a battle in which he personally commanded during the war. He defeated Washington uh, on many occasions, um, including most famously the Battle of Long Island or Brooklyn, uh, White Plains. These were some of the largest battles of the war in which Howe was uh, successful. Um, But he was always regarded as much too cautious, as was his successor, Henry Clinton. Uh, In many ways, they were regarded as the parallel of General B. McClellan, George B. McClellan, during the Civil War, of having uh, uh, the troops but not using them enough, not being vigorous enough. The two major battles lost by the British, Saratoga and Yorktown, were both lost by junior commanders, uh, John Burgoyne and later Charles Cornwallis. And these were the opposite. These were risk-takers. These were gamblers. Uh, Burgoyne, uh, when this painting was done, which is now at the Frick Collection down the street, uh, when this portrait was done, it was commissioned after the end of the uh, French and Indian War by his own commander in gratitude to him uh, for his role in essentially successfully defending Portugal against Spain. He was a brilliant young cavalry officer. He was one of the very few to be permitted to create his own cavalry regiment. Very much like William Howe, he was an innovator in the uh, military. Uh, It was um, Burgoyne who really was one of the first to discuss the conditions of ordinary soldiers and to show concern for conditions and for the pay received by officers and soldiers. After the French and Indian War, when he was serving in Europe, he did a tour of Europe in which he looked at the major armies throughout uh, Europe and looked at their strengths and weaknesses and produced really a fascinating report as to what Britain could learn or jettison from the example of other countries. Uh, He was fluent in French, and French was the language of the best military textbooks of the period, and he encouraged all officers to read French and to read their military treatises. Again, someone whose career was essentially ruined by his service in America. Lord George Germain was Secretary of State for America and was the politician in England most responsible for the war and for overseeing the war from England. Now, there's only one 
biography of Germain, and it uh, begins, I dislike this man, which is very rare. <laughs> it's very rare. I should say one scholarly biography. There's a popular one done by, or a less scholarly one done by a relative. Um, but uh, it's very rare that any biographer writes about someone they actually dislike. Uh, he was, at the time, a very controversial figure in the uh, Seven Years' War. He'd been branded a coward and had been successfully court-martialed. The court-martial was brought at his request, and uh, it was due to an incident in Germany at the Battle of Minden, and it was always said by uh, people like um, Edward Gibbon that essentially he was trying to win Germany in America. He was using America to uh, regain his reputation. He was, of course, a military veteran. Uh, the court-martials were incredibly political in this um, period, uh, and so that didn't necessarily count against him uh, with uh, some of his supporters. Uh, he was a veteran, uh, he was a very capable administrator. This is the man who got 40,000 troops to uh, America, um, about uh, th 30,000 who were sent over in the summer of 1776. Uh, no, there'd never been that many troops sent over such a long distance in this uh, period. Um, you must remember that the largest city in America at the time was Philadelphia, which we now think had a population of uh, at most 30,000. Uh, so sitting out in New York Harbor were more troops, and if you add the Navy and the ships, uh, than much more than the largest city in America. It really looked like a city out at uh, sea. Uh, it required virtually every ship in the British Merchant Navy to get them all out here. It was a mammoth effort. And Germain actually sent more troops than had been requested either by um, the commander in Canada or the commander, Sir William Howe, here in New York. It was the only time in the war where they'd have more troops at their disposal than they claimed they needed. And Germain's strategy was very simple. He wanted a knockout blow against Washington in 1776. He argued that to protract the war is cruel, uh, that you needed to engage Washington's army and crush it very early on while you had all the superiority of strength. For him, his commanders were culpable, although oddly he blamed the commander in Canada, Guy Carlton, much more than the commander here in New York, for not being aggressive enough, for being too concerned with trying to negotiate peace treaties than with actually winning the war. And most historians retrospectively have said that 1776 was the best opportunity for winning. Henry Clinton became commander-in-chief in the second half of the war. Uh, he, too, has only one biography. It happens to be a very good one which won the Bancroft Prize of the American Historical Association in the 60s. Uh, it's by William B. Wilcox. 
but it was written uh, when uh, psychohistory was becoming popular. And one of the main arguments of the book, which was developed subsequently in an academic article with a psychologist, is this was a man who had all the classic neurotic symptoms. It argued that he had a distant father, an over-attentive mother, it was pure Freudianism. And uh, it's fascinating because we know almost nothing about his early life. Uh, But I I often joke that um, this was like the old psychiatrist joke, uh, that the good news is that you are suffering from anxiety. The bad news is you have much to be anxious about. (laughs) Because Henry Clinton, Sir Henry as he became during the war, Henry Clinton was expected to win this war with fewer troops and less naval support than his predecessors. And at a time when Britain was fighting firstly France and then Spain and then Holland with much of Europe in supposedly a neutral alliance, but actually a hostile alliance against Britain. It would be one of the only times other than 1940 when Britain was fighting alone in the world. Most of its victories had always been one with allies in Europe. And Clinton did indeed show neurosis. Uh, Soon after he assumed command, a young captain uh, in his early 20s walked into his office and found his commander-in-chief in tears. And he pointed at the sentry at the door and said, I'd rather be that man than in my position. He was trying to resign at the same time that the prime minister was trying to resign in the middle of the war, and at the same time as Cornwallis was trying to resign as the deputy commander-in-chief. There was a great sense of um, disillusionment. Clinton actually was one, one of the most cerebral men in the British Army, and the person who, in many ways, best understood this war. We know that he was the best read officer in the British Army in the 18th century because we've got 30 notebooks he kept. So they're really full-size leather books of notes on military treatises and military history, detailed notes. He was a profound thinker. And it was he who really uh, identified the major issue of the war. Uh, that it was ultimately a war of hearts and minds. And he used that phrase. He said, we need to win the hearts and subdue the minds of America. He understood that a key element was winning civilian support. He also argued in order to do that, it had to be gradualistic, that it was no good the army rushing into a place and then leaving because any loyalists who'd risen in support of the army would be left stranded and at the mercy of the uh, patriots. Therefore, the way to win this war was for the regular army to work in coordination with loyalist troops to build up gradually and to reclaim uh, territory on a very gradual basis. But it was a strategy disliked by his junior Commander Cornwallis and by the authorities at home because it seemed to go nowhere. It was just too 
too slow. He also understood another key element of this war that was understood by very few people on either side, but among the patriots, it was something really understood well by Washington and by John Adams, and that was the importance of what happened at sea, the Navy, to the outcome of this war. Clinton knew New York. His father had been governor of New York. His father had been an admiral. His uncle had been an admiral. He understood the role of the sea. And he told the commanders at home, as soon as he became commander-in-chief, he warned the home government that the moment a superior French fleet arrives off the coast of America, any detachment of the British Army could be surrounded and stranded, which is exactly what happened at Yorktown. He believed that there had been at least three occasions when the British could have been defeated before Yorktown, when you had a situation of a superior French fleet off the coast of America, because the home government was supposed to guarantee that there would always be a superior British fleet off the coast, and that this was uh, essential for uh, the success of British arms in um, America. Lord Cornwallis, again, was his junior, which often uh, gets forgotten. But the home government, increasingly, Germaine, uh, communicated directly with Cornwallis, who became essentially his own commander. Uh, Cornwallis, uh, after Clinton had taken Charleston, which was the height of Clinton's career, taking the largest city in the South, Cornwallis attempted to reclaim the South. Uh, Of course, we know he ended up with defeat at Yorktown. But of all the personalities in this book, even Lord Richard Howe, he went on to enjoy the most successful post-war career. He would later play a role in putting down the Great Irish Rebellion of 1798, and he would uh, twice become Governor General of India, and uh, he actually would die on his second trip to India, and there's a huge mausoleum to him along the River Ganges. There are at least uh, two monuments dedicated to uh, Cornwallis. Ironically, he played a role in expanding the British presence, especially into the south of India, where he led armies that were much larger than any of the armies that he'd led here in uh, North America. And part of the argument of this book is that these were indeed, uh, the people who lost uh, were responsible in some cases for actually expanding the British Empire elsewhere, so that by the end of George III's reign, the British Empire was actually larger than it had been in 1776. It had become the world's largest empire at any time in history, covering a fifth of the global population. The last two people in the book are both naval figures. Sir George Rodney, the admiral, who is perhaps the person who one might least expect to find in this book, because he was the only commander during the war to emerge with his reputation actually enhanced. That's because he won and defeated three admirals 
and of three different countries. He killed one of them, the Dutch Admiral, and he captured uh, the French Admiral de Grasse, who was the same French Admiral who'd made possible Cornwallis's defeat at Yorktown in what was virtually the only British naval defeat of the 18th century, the Battle of the Chesapeake Capes. But de Grasse himself was defeated by Rodney a few months after Yorktown at a battle known as the Battle of the Saints in British history. And Rodney was indeed portrayed as Saint George slaying the dragon. And then finally, you have the Earl of uh, Sandwich, who was head of the Navy and uh, First Lord of the Admiralty. Uh, if you haven't heard of him, you will know him at least by one of his greatest legacies, the Sandwich, uh, because he would work hard and play hard and put uh, meat between two pieces of uh, bread uh, when he was busy. Uh, but Sandwich really cannot be blamed for the failure of the Navy. He had been in government before most other government ministers had even been born. He'd been commanding parts of the Navy and overseeing the Navy for decades. The Navy was a passion for him, even though his experience, his own military experience, was serving in the army. And he warned the government before the Boston Tea Party that they should mobilize uh, the Navy completely because the moment revolution broke out in America, France would soon intervene. Instead, the government actually cut the budget for the Navy in 1774 in a what proved futile idea to try and dissuade France that the British would defeat the patriots in America and then go on to wage war against the French in the Caribbean. And so the Navy was not, um, only part of it was mobilized. And that meant essentially that they were fighting with one hand behind their back. It would not be fully mobilized until 1778. But as Sandwich had warned, once the Navy is mobilized, it took a lot of time before it became really fully mobilized, because a lot of ships had been in dry dock, um, captains and commanders had been on half pay, and uh, it took uh, a lot of time to start renovating the ships and getting the Navy up to full capacity, which didn't really occur until the months after Yorktown. So those are the 10 personalities that appear in the book. Uh, they essentially have often been held responsible as to why Britain lost. I've always thought it was a strange idea and an odd thesis because it diminishes the achievements of Washington and the patriot cause if the reason the British lost was through their own stupidity. Um, it's an idea, though, that's held as much in Britain as in America. The very first British diplomatic representative to come to America met Washington in the 1790s, and he said, you know, he's an incredibly charismatic and imposing figure, but he said, I'm sure he'd have seemed less impressive if we'd sent a decent bunch of commanders against him. So this is how the British essentially explained 
their failure to themselves. It's an idea that most is sustained in film, and I'm just going to show you a very brief film clip. It's from The Patriot, and it depicts Cornwallis as more concerned about his dogs and about his sartorial elegance than winning the war. Now, you might think I'm being unfair picking The Patriot because it was attacked by lots of critics at the time, but I can promise you that if you look at any film of the American Revolution, including Al Palcino's film Revolution, you will see the same kind of caricatures. And these caricatures are important because they are indicative, at least, of this sort of popular ideas about uh, how the war was lost by Britain. I don't know if we can dim the lights. Finished, my lord. I've taken it in at the back, added wider epaulets and looped gold braiding. It's a horse blanket. Oh, I don't know, my lord. It's really quite nice. Very nice, my lord. Very well, it's a nice horse blanket. Colonel Tavington, why, after six weeks, am I still here in Middleton Place attending a ball in South Carolina when I should be attending balls in North Carolina? First, the theft of my personal baggage, including my memoirs, upon which I've spent countless hours. Then, half the bridges and ferries between here and Charlestown burned. Colonel, if you can't protect our supply lines against militia, how do you intend doing so against the colonial regulars or the French when they arrive? My lord, they won't fight like regulars. We can't find them. Colonel, they're militia. They're farmers with pitchforks. They're rather more than that, I'm afraid, my lord. Made so by their commander, this ghost. Oh, ghost, ghost, ghost. You created this ghost, Colonel. My lord. Your brutality has swelled his ranks, without which this ghost would have disappeared and I would be in North Carolina or Virginia by now. In my defense, my lord. Oh, enough, enough. Fine soldier, you are bested by a bedtime story. Give me the horse blanket. My lord. In O'Hara, our supply ship appears to have arrived. Yes, 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 my lord, it has. Yes. Then why am I still wearing this rag? My lord, your replacement wardrobe is aboard ship, but Colonel Tavington thought it best to secure our arms and munitions first. They are being unloaded now. You look good in that colour. Stinks. Mm. It's like a dead man. The beast took your dogs as well. Yes, yes. Fine animals, a gift from his majesty. Dead now, for all I know. Is there no decency? <laughs> it actually had the potential to be the great film because the characterization of Tarleton is indeed, he's shown as a very formidable, uh, a very nasty 
figure, which he was. They don't give him the name of Talton in the uh, movie, but that really helps to build up the drama. It's also set in the South that did become really the most savage, um, the most uh, bitter part of the uh, war because it became much more of a civil war uh, here in the South. So the question is, if the war was not lost by British leadership, why was it lost? And I'm going to explain this uh, in a very short uh, amount of time because I want to leave plenty of time for questions and answers. So this is uh, maybe what advertisers call the elevator pitch version. But I think it is important for historians to uh, really uh, create um, priorities in terms of their explanations as to uh, why events occur. So there are many reasons why the British lost. But my book argues that probably the prime reason was that um, the British had an army of conquest, not an army of occupation, that they were able to take every American city at some point during the war. But whenever they tried to occupy territory, they failed. They didn't have enough troops. They tried famously in New Jersey in the winter of 76, 77, you know, they'd been victorious in New York. Howe continued, and Howe's always accused of tremendous caution, and yet in New Jersey he took a great deal of the state. He had encampments spread out throughout the state, going as far as uh, the Delaware River to Trenton. And of course we know what happened next, Trenton and Princeton. When Germain heard about Trenton and Princeton, he said they must be desperate, and they were. I mean, Washington was saying this is our lowest ebb. Uh, he had 2,000 soldiers, uh, many of whom were about to end their uh, enlistments. And in fact, the British then proceeded to lose far more troops on uh, skirmishing expeditions attempting to get food supplies during that winter than they'd even lost in those battles. Uh, it happened in... Philadelphia in 1777. Howe thought he was going to find friendly support and that he would take most of the state of Philadelphia. But his positions collapsed so that essentially he just had Philadelphia and Germantown in which he was besieged much like the British in New York. But the best example is in the South. In 1780, Henry Clinton had taken Charleston a few weeks later, Lord Cornwallis uh, defeated uh, much of the remaining Continental Army at the Battle of Camden, so that you had a situation in the South where the Continental Army had all but collapsed, that all that was left were militia and what the British called partisan bands. Uh, the British thought, essentially, that they had taken... South Carolina. Uh, Clinton left to New York with the majority of his troops feeling very confident about the situation in South Carolina. And yet that was the moment from which things started to go wrong. They faced uprisings, what today we think of as insurgencies, led by people who've become popular folk heroes, people like Francis Marion, the Swamp 
Fox or Thomas Sumter the Gamecock. And there were dozens and more of these figures and uh, hundreds of uh, skirmishes in the south. The British supply lines were cut. Uh, They had to maintain posts throughout the uh, south and leave garrisons behind when the army attempted uh, to move north. Now, the British did not have an army of occupation, partly because actually the British army itself was small. Uh, It was being deployed throughout the world. A third of the army was always in Ireland as a sort of garrison against an Irish rebellion. Uh, They relied a lot on foreign mercenaries, but for budgetary reasons, there were limits as to how many mercenaries they could employ. But another major reason is the British never thought they'd have to occupy America. And they did make one major miscalculation. The British believed the majority of Americans would support them. And that simply did not happen. But it wasn't incompetence, because their belief was based on what seemed like good information. Uh, The fact is that the American Revolutionary War, like all revolutions, was also a civil war. 19,000 Americans fought for the British. Uh, Families were divided, not least Benjamin Franklin. His son was Sir William Franklin, the governor of New Jersey. The two of them never spoke again uh, during the war or afterwards. And the information the British received was always that very many more would support them if only uh, the army could reach them, and if only they could show their uh, loyalty. And a huge proportion of the population was seemingly neutral. Citizens generally didn't get engaged in warfare in this period. So the British were hoping to win what today we think of as the silent majority. And they were always getting information that there was latent support among the majority for them. The problem was, once the British army got to America, its very presence started to alienate the population. The armies did do what armies did in the 18th century. They plundered, they committed rapes, uh, atrocities, and uh, these would generally count much more against the British, even than against the patriots, whose own army... Uh, certainly engaged in some plunder and uh, some uh, atrocities, but not not in a way that uh, alienated the population to the same extent. Uh, The British, too, were fighting alone with no foreign allies. They'd been able to win the French and Indian War, partly thanks to the support of Prussia and what they called a strategy of defeating France in Europe, while they expanded their presence in uh, America. Uh, They were fighting a world war after 1778, where their resources were stretched from India through the Mediterranean. Every merchant fleet had to be convoyed by the uh, navy. Uh, There were problems of logistics, of fighting 3,000 miles away with an antiquated administrative system. There were many reasons, but ultimately the British were not 
defeated. George III was right. They could have gone on after Yorktown. Their main army was still intact in New York. They had an army, and they had Canada as well. Uh, they still had Charleston. They still had Savannah. They still had uh, St. Augustine and East Florida. Lord George Maine put forward new plans as to how the war would be continued in 1782. What really changed in Britain, and here's a great similarity to Vietnam, was opinion at home that the opposition parties were gaining ground. The government could no longer uh, rely on majorities. Army officers, many of them sat in Parliament in this period, and the majority of army officers sitting in the House of Commons had started to vote against the war and against continuing the war. And so in March of 1782, Lord North essentially had to resign. He no longer had the majority of support in the House of Commons. Now, the main argument of the book was that a British victory was unlikely, but it was still a war that could have been lost by the patriots. And therefore, everything we also learned in grade school and high school about why the patriots won is important. The leadership. Imagine a different leader to Washington, and especially the leaders who were suggested, John Hancock, and um, also uh, you know, the, um, uh, the, the person who commanded at the Battle of uh, Saratoga, who later, Gates, yeah, that's right, uh, who later ran away after the Battle of uh, Camden. Uh, Horatio Gates, incidentally, was a British officer um, Charles Lee, known as Boiling Water Lee by his Indian name, who was later court-martialed uh, by um, Washington. Uh, these would not nearly have been, had the political finesse or the military skills of Washington. Uh, similarly, the American marksmanship, all of which uh, the British paid testimony to by the end of the war. They no longer uh, saw these as in any way inferior troops. Now, I'm going to do a question and answer, but at the very end, about eight minutes before we finish, I want to show another video clip. And it's from the uh, series, the John Adams series, in which it shows Adams presenting his credentials as the first representative, minister plenipotentiary uh, of the United States of America to George III. And the reason I want to show it is that it actually is based on exactly the dialogue that uh, John Adams wrote the next day and sent home. It's almost like a movie script. Uh, it was especially well done in the uh, Adams series. And in some ways, it acts as a nice end note because that was the moment in which the umbilical cord was finally cut between Britain and America. Thank you very much. I'm Jim Pesinich, and I'm a docent here. My question deals with the Howe brothers. They were very, very sympathetic to the colonial cause, and 
couple years ago, Sotheby actually auctions off some of their letters. And in 1776, they write to, I guess, Lord North saying that if more troops aren't put to this cause, that they're going to lose the war. Did North and the people in England sort of doubt that because of their sympathies towards the colonials? Well, I, I you know, General Gage, who was Howe's predecessor, had made the same warning. Uh, and, uh, you know, he originally said you need 20,000 troops in America, which, of course, would later seem an absurdly small number, but at the time they thought it was a sign he'd lost his nerve. Um, the government always underestimated what resources would be needed. Eventually, if you include Canada and the West Indies, they had about 55,000 soldiers, not including the Navy, um, which was virtually all they could have sustained. I mean, there, there were budgetary constraints as to how many men they could send out. So especially during the second half of the war, they were relying on loyalists coming forward, and they did much more to start organizing um, the loyalist militia. But loyalist militia were just like patriot militia. They weren't terribly reliable. They didn't want necessarily to serve outside of their states. And uh, you know, they were difficult to work with, which was true for the patriots um, as well. But the British never finessed uh, what Nathaniel Green essentially did in the South with a very small unit of the Continental Army to work very closely with the various partisan bands uh, and militia. Thank you. We usually right. alternate here between yes. the sides. Right. It's his right, turn, you. I think. Uh, uh, the, the, I don't want to overstate the case, but there seems to be a long tradition in the British mm -hmm. Army for prominent uh, sub-commanders to, I don't want to say disobey, but ignore orders. Yes. You see it in World War II with Montgomery and Bomber Harris. Mm -hmm. and there, was a, like, there was some of this uh, in the, in the uh, Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. did this, what kind of effect did this have on, on, uh, on, their overall, on the overall strategy? Well, I mean, it really uh, it, it undermined Clinton. Clinton never wanted a war in the South. He, he wanted to gain a port town in the South, but he'd never really envisaged um, you know, making the South the focus of the war. Clinton believed New York would be the main focus of the war and that the French and Washington would make their great bid at New York. And in fact, he was right. Um, and Washington believed right up until just before Yorktown, that the mother of all battles would be in New York. And indeed, he believed to defeat the British, it wasn't enough to defeat a detachment of their army, that you'd need to defeat the main army in uh, New York. Uh, and Washington has also been accused of essentially being uh, too cautious and doing little in 1779 and 1780. But the Washington papers have recently published the volumes for those years. They're based in Charlottesville as well. And the Washington papers, uh, as these volumes have been published, it's become more and more clear that Washington was aiming at a great strike in 1779 and again 1780. But he was relying on the French fleet and specifically the Admiral d'Estaing, who in both cases essentially let him down. Thank you. 
but it undermined Clinton. And uh, you know, Clinton almost gave up trying to command. And it led to a lot of the um, mistrust and awkwardness between the commanders just before Yorktown at a time when they really needed to be working together. The uh, most shocking book I've seen in the last year is by Gerald Horn of the University of uh, Houston called The Counter-Revolution mm -hmm. of 1776, which argues that the slave owners of America mm. made a revolution because they were afraid that the British might abolish mm. slavery. And yes. they were not fighting for their own freedom so much mm. as to deny them the other people. And I know that's a little bit off your topic, but it does kind of speak to the Civil War aspect. I think Horn says that most of the American slaves were hoping the British would win and, in fact, fought for the British when they could. I'd just love to hear what your comments are on that. Well, thank you for raising that, um, because I mentioned how the very presence of the British Army alienated opinion, uh, but it was also their allies, Native Americans, German mercenaries, the uh, Declaration of Independence actually cites these as reasons for um, rebellion and their promise of freedom to slaves and arming slaves. The first to do this was Lord Dunmore, the British governor in Virginia. Uh, it was always a kind of uh, ad hoc British policy, but Clinton essentially made it um, a much more regular policy from 1778 by the time Cornwallis was in Virginia, he had 2,000 uh, enslaved people with him. And what was very unusual is that generally people ran away as individuals, and especially males. This was entire families, including um, the enslaved population of places like Mount Vernon and Monticello. Uh, there were uh, mothers and uh, husbands running away with their uh, children. And, uh, you know, there's an argument, and I think a strong one, that this was a major factor in alienating support in the South. Because I think it's more difficult to explain why somewhere like South Carolina supported the revolution than Massachusetts. I previously worked on the British islands in the Caribbean, which remained loyal and didn't even produce pamphlets, really, against Britain, even though they were against the war because it was bad for the economy of the islands. Um, but somewhere like South Carolina is very similar to the conditions on the islands. Um, and so it is interesting to ask why they were so uh, alienated. I've got far from all sides. <laughs> Thank you for in, your enlightened presentation. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I'd like to emphasize the fact, too, that in the, in the West Indies, mm -hmm. there were, what, 55,000 troops there. I believe that the British feared, they were concerned in losing the profitable trade that they had in indigo and uh, sugar. One, one fast comment, too, from the previous speaker. World War II also was lost by the British in the Pacific. But I see similarities through history. Yes. The Japanese overwhelmed them, and mm. that shouldn't have happened. Thank Absolutely. You. And I'm very glad you mentioned the Caribbean, because the British Army and Navy was actually shrinking in America in the second half of the war. This is why Sir Henry Clinton was so worried. 
And they were sending many more troops and naval support to the Caribbean because their main concern was defeating the French. And then they would return and try and defeat the patriots. They hadn't given up in America, but France became their major uh, preoccupation. And the French were much more concerned with taking islands in the Caribbean than assisting uh, the cause of the revolution. Uh, They took uh, eventually seven islands, and they were poised to take Jamaica with um, Spain. So this was terribly important to uh, France. In fact, de Grasse overstayed his orders at Yorktown. Uh, He was meant to be taking Jamaica. Christopher Minty, I'm a Bernard and Irene Schwartz fellow here. Uh, I'm working on a book that looks at New York City prior to the American Revolution, and there are two individuals, part of the British Army, that play a really important role there, and it's Thomas Gage and Frederick Haldimand. Mm. And I'm interested in hearing your comments on why they weren't included in your book, because they were in charge of the army immediately before the American Revolutionary War began. Why I didn't include them? Yes, um... I didn't want, I wanted really to have an even balance between political and military figures. Um, and uh, if I had done Gage, and it would be legitimate to have done him, uh, and I do talk about him at some length in my chapter on how, but it would essentially become a history of the war in Massachusetts, uh, and I thought too longer. I didn't want the book to be longer than it was, essentially. Uh, I could have included him. I could have included Haldeman, Guy Carlton. Uh, these would all be people, if I was to expand the book, that I would have included. But I think for the... I mean, my main purpose is to explain why the British lost, uh, rather than to be utterly exhaustive in the coverage of everything. Uh, and I think for the... I, concentrate on the period that is really crucial. Uh, But I was aware that I could have uh, added uh, very easily. Uh, It's also a problem from a narrative perspective. Uh, If one had done a chapter on Holdman and Guy Carlton, you would have uh, then really been focused on Canada. It would also um, have uh, essentially uh, detracted from the overarching narrative of the of the book uh, and have led to even more duplication and the danger of doing it this way was to get duplication because obviously some of these personalities were at the same event uh, and involved in the same issues and I wanted to have as little overlap as I possibly could thank you thank you Sorry. <laughs> we'll take um, this last question, then I'm going to show the, uh, the clip. Uh, Piers Maxey once showed how, during the War of 1812, that they were, when the Royal Navy was finally at its height, obviously because of the Napoleonic Wars, that they were completely able to cripple American trade. Mm. And had they been able to do so you know, during the American War, like, for instance, mm. there was no way for them to make gunpowder uh, gun mm. or, or flints or saltpeter or anything like that. If they were able to cut them off completely initially... Would that have been another, in your opinion, would that have been another factor that could have been... You know, yes. I mean, Germaine was... Uh, I mean, one of his strategies was a naval blockade, and he argued the Navy should also be attacking the centers of uh, trade. Um, the problem was the Navy, too, was just overstretched. 
They were convoying all of these um, merchant ships. They were also accompanying the army. And even during the American Civil War, with all the power of the Union, they were never able to totally blockade the South. I forget the statistic, but I think even weeks before the end of the war, at least a third of the ships were still getting through. So there are limits to uh, a successful blockade. Um, and the, you know, the British had uh, about 75% of their lighter craft over here in 1776, uh, you know, the smaller size cruising ships. Uh, even they were often ineffective in trying to outrun uh, these very small craft. It was very much like the modern-day drug trade, especially in the Caribbean. Uh, you know, they talked about these v ships from Virginia and places where the captains knew, because they'd been trading in all of these areas, they knew the seas very well, and they could basically outrun the British Navy. And the, one of the, uh, I mean, a topic which I would love to see develop much more are American privateers who were really the militia at sea and who did huge damage to British trade and were, uh, according to one of the governors in the Caribbean, they were like gnats and fleas. They were just everywhere. Uh, they were even intercepting people and capturing people going from one island to another. But let me show you what I think is essentially the bookmark and the final moment uh, and the final goodbye. Mr. John Adams. United States of America. The United States of America have appointed me Minister Plenipotentiary to Your Majesty. I think myself more fortunate than all of my fellow citizens in having the distinguishing honor 
to be the first to stand in your majesty's presence in a diplomatic character. I shall esteem myself the happiest of men if I can be instrumental in restoring the confidence and affection, or in better words, the good old nature and the good old humor between peoples who, though separated by an ocean and under different governments, have the same language, similar religion, and kindred blood. I beg your majesty's permission to add that though I have been before entrusted by my country it was never in my whole life in a manner more agreeable to myself circumstances of this audience are so extraordinary. The language you have now held is so extremely proper and the feelings you have discovered so justly adapted to the occasion that I not only receive with pleasure the assurance of the friendly disposition of the United States but that I am very glad that the choice has fallen on you to be their minister. I will be very frank with you. I was the last to consent to separation. But the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I have always said, as I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. Thank you, Your Majesty. There is an opinion among some people, Mr. Adams, that you are not the most attached of all your countrymen to the manners of France. <laughs> uh, yes, well, I avow to your majesty that I have no attachment to any country but my own. An honest man will never have any other.
I pray, Mr. Adams, that the United States does not suffer unduly from its want of a monarchy. Yes, we will, we will strive to answer those prayers, Your Majesty.